This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Well, our most read story, and understandably so, on this Jobs Friday is about that monthly jobs report. U.S. jobs jumping by the most in 10 months, the economy gaining steam, payrolls climbing 850,000 in June, led by, once again, leisure and hospitality jobs. Jobless rate ticking up, too, as workers voluntarily left positions. Let's get a view, though, on hiring and what she is also hearing from her corporate clients, it's why I love talking with her. Irina Novoselsky, she is CEO of Career Builder, for more than 20 years has been helping companies around the globe hire global workers. She joins us once again on the phone in New York City. Irina, how are you? Good. How are you doing, Hal? Doing well, doing well. Looking forward to the, the long holiday weekend. And uh, we got that jobs report, and it's a reminder that we are continuing to build back after the pandemic. Yes, and one of the things that I have found so interesting in looking at this data is this is a very different recovery than we've ever really seen in the past. And what I mean by that is supply is 50% higher, given the unemployment is still where it is. We see companies, our clients are posting 30% more than they were pre-COVID, and yet the application rate is 25% down than the average of three years before covid and we're seeing a 48-year high of open jobs across all segments. So it's this really interesting dynamic that's happening with the labor market. Yeah, okay. And it's a dislocation. We kind of knew that would happen. Maybe we didn't know to this extent. I think there might have been uh, a belief out there that as soon as things started to reopen, everybody would come rushing back. But it's not that clear, especially if you've got kids out of school and you're still dealing with that. There are still people who maybe haven't gotten the vaccine or who are a little bit nervous uh, still about the virus, as as you say, um, or as we've been reporting. There's, It's just still a lot of issues going on. Do you think in September, as some have suggested, the Labor Secretary, Marty Walsh, t- talked about it with Bloomberg TV earlier today, that once September happens and kids go back to school, it'll be a different picture? It'll improve, and and you mentioned this, but some of the things that are driving people to stay on the sidelines and not really engage is a mix of taking care of children with hybrid school systems, taking care of elderly is up 7% versus the time before COVID, retired populations actually up 11% versus uh, before COVID. So there's certain things that are you know, not really related to unemployment benefits or September or timeline per se. However, there is this big chunk of the population that is just sitting and and watching and waiting. And some of it might be COVID fatigue and just waiting to get back in the market. But one of the things that's interesting is if you look at the states, there's about 25 states that have ended their unemployment benefits early. Mm -hmm. Uh, They extended benefits. And there's another 25 that still have them. So it's turned out to be a very great A-B testing uh, model. And we're actually seeing that the states that have not ended their extended unemployment see more applications. And that really tends to, to drive towards the answer of, Perhaps it's going to be a little longer than September to see major change. Do you anticipate that there will be a point where maybe we get a month where there's a million or two million that all of a sudden uh, people will come rushing back to work because they kind of have to? 
They kind of have to. I think the school system, to your point, will help when once September comes. But one of the things that's also interesting is wages are starting to go mm-hmm. up. And some of the things that we're seeing as incentives, and it's a mix of wages and benefits and just various incentives, whether it's work from home or days off or volunteer days. One of the things that we just saw at our, in our latest career builder survey was that 51% of companies are going to be increasing their minimum wage. Wow. And almost 60% of those are increasing it above $15 an hour. Wow. Okay. So, hmm. And is that across industries? It's across industries, but, you know, you started a little bit this this conversation by saying the quit rate is higher. Yeah. And the quitting rate is higher on those front-end COVID-most impacted industries. We saw 50% growth in quit rate in retail. And so one of the things that our clients are really working with us on is not only how do you attract talent, how do you keep the engagement and retain the talent you have? And one of our surveys came back and said that almost 40% are expecting greater than a 5% wage increase this year for employees that are currently employed. And and there's a lot of other uh, engagement technologies that our clients are partnering with us just to help drive and really try to mitigate the quit rate that we're seeing out there. You've watched a lot of labor markets. How does this one stack up? Well, the interesting thing is that you would expect to see similar recession recovery in the labor market. However, this wasn't a regular recession. It was pandemic-induced, and a lot of it was temporary labor that got uh, pulled out of the workforce. And so it, it looks like it's really this combination of candidates just having COVID fatigue and sitting there and assessing when does it make sense to come back. When, when is that balance fit? And coupled with the thing that we're seeing searched for more and more is candidates are being picky mm-hmm. on what they come back for. They're looking for all those things on their list that maybe they didn't attribute as much before are prioritizing now. What does the company stand for? What are the company's values? What's the mission? What are the overall benefits? And mm-hmm. so it, it's much more than just, just the straight job. I was just talking with a major tech firm, uh, publicly traded, and exactly that point that the workers, they care about what a company stands for, what uh, the employee benefits, and so on and so forth. There's a lot of uh, almost the employee being in the driver's seat a lot more than they used to be. Irina, great insight, as always. Irina Novoselsky, she's CEO of Career Builder, joining us on the phone in New York City. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. Well, this week, Facebook became a member of the $1 trillion market cap club. And as our Sarah Fryer reports, the company getting there with a grow-at-any-cost culture. This story online at BloombergBusinessWeek.com. Sarah is Bloomberg News Big Tech uh, team leader, author of No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram, which is a perfect summer read if you haven't read it yet. Sarah joins us on the phone in San Francisco. Hey, Sarah, it has been a big week for Facebook. Every time we see a company hit a trillion-dollar market, it tends to be one of these big fang companies. Uh, We all kind of sit up and take notice. You write about how Facebook got there. You know, uh, thanks for that. It is is really remarkable. Facebook, among the tech companies that have achieved that one trillion milestone, is the fastest to do so in just 17 years. And if you think about all of the criticism of Facebook's data mining business model, of the way that they've allowed misinformation to go viral, of all of the, the you know, 
copying and acquiring competitor strategy, everything they've been criticized for, forget it. It's been a moment of validation for Zuckerberg, and, and he has no incentive to operate any other way. And really what's gotten him to this point is, is like you said, the grow-at-all-cost culture, the fact that Facebook is just ruthlessly focused on capturing more of our attention and more of our time and doing whatever it can to get another another slice of, of um, engagement and content on their platform. Isn't it kind of amazing? And, Wait, a company that's built on, you know, creating friends, social friends and likes, and you have this line in your story, I love it. Zuckerberg runs his company like an emperor paranoid about obsolescence. What do you mean? He's, he's all about gaining more territory. Every, every time Facebook announces a new kind of product, every time they acquire something, every time they try a new app, it's all to try to build your habit to, um, to increase your reliance on the company. The way we use Facebook today may be very different than how we've used it in the past. Um, maybe we don't even use Facebook anymore, but, but we use WhatsApp or we use Instagram. Um, it, has, it has tried to give people as many ways and reasons to come on and, and create content there that then can be, can be um, processed through their advertising algorithm so they can give you targeted advertising. It's, it's just the more time you spend there, the more information you create for Facebook to target you with ads, and that's the whole business. Well, and you've talked to you've talked to employees on the inside, Sarah, and what do they say, especially when they maybe put out proposals about, you know, fact checking, maybe we should do that some more or shutting down, I think you write about networks of bots supporting despot politicians. Do those employees kind of get shot down in their ideas? Yeah, at Facebook, there really is not, it's not a place where if you point out a problem, people are excited. If you point out a problem at Facebook, it's like, oh, like, you know, why why did you say that? We don't we don't have time. We're focused on growing. Like the bonuses at Facebook, the promotions at Facebook are all tied to that incremental addition of of users or time spent or engagement on the platform. And if somebody comes in with, you know, maybe a really good idea to increase the well being of Facebook users. Um, that is is not as exciting as it has anything that would any component that would decrease either revenue or growth of of users on the platform. And so it's been really frustrating. But you know, if you're Facebook, why change? Right. <laughs> if you have you have that trillion validation now, you have people telling you the market telling you rather yeah. um, that you're doing everything right. I do wonder, I spend so much time talking with CEOs of publicly held companies about ESG, environmental social governance. And I do wonder at some point, where does this fit into those metrics? Things like, you know, especially social media, the social media space and accuracy of information or trolling people or data privacy. When does that catch up with the institutional investors who say, wait, you need to be worried about this? I don't think those investors are, are in <laughs> Facebook. In fact, we've seen a lot of those investors pull out of Facebook, but it, it, mm. it, is, um, it is something that, listen, I think if Facebook had more clear direction for where it should take its platform, um, this is the challenge with, with what regulators have proposed. We saw the 
the thing that got them to their one trillion valuation was the judge striking down the Federal Trade Commission lawsuit that called Facebook a monopoly. And the FTC was thinking, you know, one thing that would really bring Facebook down to size is breaking off Instagram and WhatsApp. Well, that's not going to change the culture. Right. You're just going to have three separate companies that now want to get to a trillion in value. So you you really just have to make the, the goalpost different. Um, I say in the piece that, like, this this one trillion milestone is kind of like having, um, you know, 100 million followers on Instagram or a, the most viral post on Facebook. It's quality and quantity are not the same thing. Um, just because something's bigger doesn't mean that it's, it's happier or better or or healthier. Um, and I think that there there should be other ways to measure success. So. Is it possible, though, you bring up the you know regulators and the FTC, the new FTC chair in particular, she does think about monopolistic power differently. Uh, and I do wonder if that will ultimately could lead to some changes at, at some point in Facebook's model. Yeah, so the way that monopolies were generally thought of is, you know, this is a company that has had a corner of, corner of the market where they're able to overcharge consumers and and do all sorts of predatory uh, deals that cut everyone else out. These these tech companies, though, all of them, you know, for the most part, are giving away products for free or low margin. Um, they are they are instead creating their influence on our economy and our world through expanding into new business lines and just trying to gobble up more of our attention and data. And so coming into the FTC role with that kind of mindset, you know, that's, that's along the lines of what Lena Khan has written in the past, maybe that's a path to thinking about monopoly differently. And with Facebook, it's not so much about, you know, what is their market share of social media? Because there's so many things with so many people now. <laughs> right. I, I think it's more interesting to look at the kinds of people who are dependent on Facebook, the, the small businesses, the creators, mm-hmm. um, the, the media organizations, the folks who who rely on Facebook either for audience development or for advertising or um, for a venue to reach their customers. And they're not being being well taken care of because Facebook has no incentive to do so. Right. It's it, There's you, no customer service. There's no recourse if your account gets shut down. Hmm. Um, you know, the AI manages everything. And, and so I think that's, that's a ripe territory to look into. Yeah, it is pretty impressive. The, the Facebook, the amount of power it has uh, over small businesses and others and, and just uh, who it prioritizes when it comes to its platforms. Sarah, thank you so much. Sarah Fryer, she's Big Tech Team, leader at Bloomberg News, author of No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, my co-host Tim Stenovic is off. He'll be back on Tuesday. COVID headlines on this Friday from France to the U.S. government's really raising the alarm on the spread of the more transmissible Delta variant. COVID-19 cases in France could jump again as soon as the summer spoiling holidays. India reported more than 400,000 COVID-related deaths, a toll that exceeded only by the U.S. and Brazil. And then J&J coming out saying it's single-shot coronavirus vaccine neutralizing the Delta variant and providing durable 
protection against infection more broadly. So much still going on as we know it. Let's get to our weekly check on COVID and the vaccine. Dr. Ian Lospader Black with us, uh, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone, back on the phone in New York City. Dr. Lospader, nice to have you here. How are you? Uh, doing very well, Carol. Always a pleasure. How are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. I have to be honest. I'm having more and more conversations with colleagues, people in general, with guests on air about this Delta variant and trying to put it in perspective. Most seem to say, if you've got the vaccine, you're going to be okay. But I'm trying to kind of assess what it might mean maybe over the next couple of months when it gets colder. Could we see another wave? How do you see it? So we talked a few uh, weeks ago about Delta uh, emerging in India mm-hmm. and uh, that it was more transmissible. Uh, fortunately, it, it does not appear to be more lethal at this point, but India, certainly with only 10% uh, of the population vaccinated, is uh, in trouble and not surprising that they're having a significant number of cases. Uh, same for the UK. In the United States, we are seeing more cases arise of about 14% really primarily in states with a low vaccination rate. So this is another argument why vaccinations are very important and protective. And we can talk a little bit more about the specifics of that. But we're seeing cases in Nevada, Wyoming, uh, Missouri, Arkansas. And unfortunately, uh, we're seeing a rise in the number of new Delta variants. Eventually, that is going to supplant the original uh, alpha variant that we have here. It's about, Delta's about 20% or so of, of new cases. I think that's going to rise. It's, it is go- going to become the more dominant um, kind of subspecies that, uh, that will uh, occur in patients who are not vaccinated. Could it lead to a situation akin to where we were a year, year and a half ago or so uh, on the initial virus uh, before all the variants started breaking out, where we start to see hospitals overwhelmed, especially because not everybody has been vaccinated. And maybe we see pockets around the country where that's happening. Is that is that likely? Well, we're definitely going to see pockets. I, I think uh, it's sort of good news, bad news. The, the good news is is that really um, 99%, over 99% of, of deaths uh, in the hospital are from unvaccinated uh, patients. Mm-hmm. So the vaccines really, that's more evidence that uh, vaccines really do provide some a uh, significant level of protection, and it it should be a warning to people who are not vaccinated. And you know, we do definitely see people who have vaccine hesitancy for a variety of reasons, some internet rumors, and some other underlying medical issues. But for the vast majority of people. Any of the vaccines are very effective. We've had some new data about J&J, mm-hmm. and we certainly see that the Pfizer mRNA vaccine is clearly uh, 80 to 90 percent effective in uh protection. Uh, There are a few cases of these breakthroughs where people do get uh, recovery of virus after they've been vaccinated, usually they're very mild or even asymptomatic cases. The data is about 10,000 patients in the U.S. as of April 30th. It's probably a little higher now. But basically, the, certainly the mRNA vaccines are very, very effective. And uh, really, so are the AstraZeneca and J&J as well. Not quite to that level, but quite effective. So younger people, though, that's where we start to see or we have been seeing maybe, you know, hesitancy when it comes to taking the vaccine, or maybe they're just not thinking about it as much (laughs) because they weren't as worried as much. But should they be 
worried, especially when we know that there are those COVID long haulers, that you can get COVID and you can be dealing with um, ailments for a long time. Carol, as usual, you're, you're right on the story. Uh, you know, this is really a case of, you know, some risk if you, a small risk if you take the vaccine, but a significant risk if you choose not to and get COVID because it does turn out um, at least a third of patients who get COVID, maybe even more, have much long-term issues, whether it's loss of smell or brain fog or chest pain or shortness of breath or fatigue, you know, we really see, you know, a panoply of, of long-haul symptoms in, unfortunately, a, a significant percent of patients. And we really don't have a great way of treating that. You know, we have mm-hmm. clinics that we're starting now, long-haul clinics, but there's no secret formula to helping these patients who have ongoing symptoms. So here we are, what, almost a year and a half in, I feel like, um, What goes through your head when you just kind of look back at this time? You know, it uh, certainly in the Northeast, we've been through a rough go with a lot of hospitalizations. We now have, you know, over at least in the Northeast, New York, uh, 70% vaccinations. We're seeing very few cases and hospitalizations. I have a number of patients who ask me about breakthrough and they ask me about um, you know, potential risks of the vaccine and that it hasn't been around long. But I think we can say now the, the, the problems with vaccines are really very low, not zero. Some of the problems with clotting and so forth may be related to the way the vaccines are administered. Mm-hmm. meaning you have to aspirate a little bit back. You don't want to eject in a blood vessel. But there's some data. You know, people were worried about um, fertility. There was one study out of the University of Miami that actually showed sperm counts went up a bit uh, after the vaccination, not down. So, you know, I, that's not a reason to take it, but I think that's at least one element to reassure people that what they're fearing um, may be more Internet rumor than real fact. Ian, I do hope you don't mind if you will indulge me and uh, talk about something else in the medical community. I'm going to talk about this a little bit later on uh, on our broadcast, but Regeneron, uh, it's a stock that's moving today, but they discovered a rare genetic mutation that protects against obesity. So providing some new insights into the genetic basis of obesity, you know, you and I talk about a lot of different subjects when it comes to the medical community. And this is one that, you know, could be huge for a company like that in trying to get to the bottom of why is it that that some people have a tougher time when it comes to weight. Right. So obesity really is an epidemic uh, over the past several decades. It's estimated that up to 40% or maybe more of Americans are obese. And part of that is defined as BMI or body mass index. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not going to get into the details of that, but suffice it to say, you know, you go down any street and it varies from um, uh, northern states, southern states, but uh, obesity is endemic. Part of that is really an understanding that for most of human civilization, food was very scarce. We really evolved to uh, put on weight and and hang on to weight uh, because those are the people that survived the ice age and famine and a whole host of things. It's not really until kind of the 20th century with food preservation and crops and fertilizers, really after the 1950s, after World War II, when technologic breakthroughs occurred, both in farming and food preservation, that food became abundant. I mean, we think food's Mm -hmm. been abundant 
for a long time, but it's really only been in the last, say, 50 years, which is also when we've seen obesity and all the complications of that diabetes and so forth. So we really do need to better understand what are the genetics behind that and really how to modify it. We don't have great treatments. Obviously, we talk about diet. There's also some evidence that maybe antibiotics in food and in meat, for example, mm-hmm. uh, may affect the microbiome, the gut bacteria, uh, and that may be another factor, but certainly genetics play a role. And the more we understand about obesity, the better we're able to treat it because now we've gone from uh, famine to feast and we need to really get back uh, to lean and mean. Uh, that is now the evolutionary advantage, whereas in the past, being a little overweight helped you survive. It's different now. It is so different. And it's interesting. You were talking about this, about food preservation, how it's really changed it, that food used to be so scarce. And so I find it interesting today in the 21st century we have so much obesity in this world but at the same time there are still millions of people who don't have enough food it's like these incredible contrasts what is how do we fix this and kind of find a nice balance um because we know obesity in particular um same as food starvation but obesity has obviously a cost to society is it the food companies is it governments how do we because i think we got to a place where big portions. It's a good thing. You know, we just have a different mindset about food. I think we definitely do have a different mindset about food. And I think we do need to um, kind of peel the layers back and look into vested interests. For example, just briefly to get back to COVID, mm-hmm. there are potential medications like ivermectin, perhaps, or other simple um, available medications that may be effective. I think we need more studies. We're using very effective monoclonal antibodies, uh, which are rather expensive, and I think we need to put more research into this, and I think we need to put more research, as we do, into obesity, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, It may not be good to be giving uh, antibiotics to chickens and to cows and to so forth. That may play a more important role that we're just beginning to understand at this point, exposing young kids. Uh, at an early age to antibiotic after antibiotic. And and I think we need to distribute food better, and I think we need to – there's a lot of evidence that plant-based diets are better for the environment, lower CO2, lower methane. I think there certainly is a role for for people who may want to eat meat. But I think the data is very clear that – um, healthier people are having more plant-based diet and complex grains, for example, oatmeal, water-soluble fiber, less diverticular disease. So I think we need to educate people, we need to get more research, and we need to distribute food better to places that need it. We throw out a tremendous amount of food in the United States just because it doesn't look good, you know, just-, just because you've got misshapen fruit. I just did a panel on that. It's like 30, 40% of food in general gets wasted uh, in the whole supply chain. Hey, i uh, got about 20, 25 seconds left. Um, a year after the year that's been so crazy, this July 4th, different for you? Yes, you know, certainly I think we're beginning to see a light at the end of the tunnel. I think mm-hmm. last July 4th when we spoke, we, we thought this would be over. It's not over. We're going to have another year or two, okay. just like in 1918. But um, have a great Independence Day weekend. Congratulations on Connecticut. And uh, we are making progress, and I think everyone needs to hang in there. We are. We will conquer this. All right. Good optimism and a great way to go into the holiday weekend. Be well. Dr. Ian Lospedo, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone, on the phone in New York City. I'm driving in my car. 
I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. So just about 10 and a half minutes left in today's trading session. It was a big day. We got that monthly jobs report. We've seen stocks just take off, uh, and we're looking at record highs for those major equity averages. Meantime, the bond market, certainly those yields along the yield curve, looks like they have definitely settled down. So taking these uh, numbers, that jobs report, a little bit better than uh, forecast uh, and showing continued recovery in the U.S. economy. Nonetheless, the bond market taking it in stride. So let's get to it with Eric Stein. He watches the fixed income market. He's Chief Investment Officer of Fixed Income over at Eaton Vance. Eaton Vance, by the way, is the presenting sponsor of the Boston Pops July 4th Spectacular, which as we just talked about, you can catch that on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg TV on Sunday. Eric joining us now from Boston. Eric, first I've got to ask you, I mean, Boston Pops, man, you live in Boston, you know about it, you go to it, it's just incredible. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a great event that you know uh, at Eaton Vance we're super uh, excited to sponsor for the fifth year in a row in conjunction with Bloomberg. Obviously, this year being a kind of hybrid event, both in, in Tanglewood for the concert and then uh, and then the fireworks uh, over the Boston Commons. So a little little different than in, in pre-COVID times, but at least back to something live, uh, unlike last uh, last summer. And so certainly a very exciting event that uh, that I'm looking forward to, and I know hopefully many of your listeners are as well. Yeah, we always look forward to it. Hybrid like the rest of the world, right, as we make our way back. Having said that, I feel like this was a bit of a hybrid jobs report. There was something in it almost for everyone, and it wasn't too hot for everybody to all of a sudden think the Fed's going to have to change its thinking about uh, the balance sheet or quantitative easing or rates anytime soon. But it, uh, it did also remind us that things are continuing to recover. Yeah, no, I completely agree. A hybrid report or a Goldilocks report, mm-hmm. I think you can call it either can I, one. Can we say and, that? Can we say it's a Goldilocks report? <laughs> I, for, for the equity market, I think you can, you can certainly say that, you know, looking at the markets. And, you know, I think the markets have been a little, despite the fact equities seem to go up almost every day, I think yeah. broad markets have been a little confused given, uh, you know, in the past two, two and a half weeks since the last Fed meeting, where the Fed was, you know, incrementally hawkish. And so you saw a flattening of the yield curve and strength in the U.S. dollar, uh, you know, today that reversed with, with weakness in the dollar, and I, I think you know, weak dollar yields a couple basis points lower, and treasuries and stocks up. Mm-hmm. You combine that price action that, that shows me that markets are less concerned about the Fed prematurely tightening, uh, less concerned about uh, that, or less concerned about tapering, and, and then asset markets continue to do well because you have the momentum, cyclical momentum that we're seeing as we come out of uh, COVID. Hopefully, uh, variants notwithstanding, come out of COVID. So a lot of cyclical momentum in the economy, and then from an asset price perspective, it's you know, how do you look at that? as well as intersection of of monetary policy, fiscal policy, and whatnot. You know, we do, you do, parse over everything that the Fed says, Uh, certainly in those meetings, those statements, and then when we start to hear from Fed speakers following those meetings or before the next meeting, you said that, uh, I'm just looking at some research you shared with us, that you think it was pretty significant that in that last Fed meeting, the first time the Fed seemed somewhat concerned about inflation being too high, they are starting to kind of spoon feed us and remind us that, folks, this policy isn't going to be forever. Yeah, you know, exactly. Look, if you go back almost a year ago to, to August of 2020 at virtual Jackson Hole, uh, and when Chair Powell kind of 
put out this average inflation targeting framework that effectively the Fed, if they're under, if they were undershooting on inflation, they need to overshoot to catch up, and and they would not let bygones be bygones, and and that along with a lot of other signals from the Fed, I think was trying to show markets, look, we want higher inflation. We think we've been missing on our inflation target to the downside since the financial crisis. Then we had COVID come. We really want higher inflation, and they have not pushed back against that narrative until the last meeting where they pushed back against it a little bit and, and tried to get slightly more symmetrical uh, in their policy, uh, potential policy response going forward. Still very, very easy monetary policy, but right. do, do they start to well, pull the stimulus back? Is it smart for investors too, Eric, to think about when they look at the financial markets that even when the Fed starts to uh, either stop buying, it's still going to be a stimulative pro- you know, policy, right? And even if rates start to go up, it's still rates that are very low on a historical basis, it will still be easy money out there. Yeah, so 100% correct that it will still be easy money, though, I, you know, I will say that markets, you know, get set at the margin uh, versus what their expectations were before they got a piece of data or, or, or communication from the Fed. So mm-hmm. incrementally, you know, if you think go back to the taper tantrum uh, of 2013, and I think that's what both both markets and the Fed uh, have that, even though it was uh, eight years ago, have that, you know, very much entrenched into their memories uh, is, you know, that was still easy monetary policy, but it was the beginning of, of tapering a really the beginning of talking about tapering that scared the markets by the time the Fed actually tapered its bond purchases at that uh, point in the cycle, then, then markets continued to, to do well. So certainly, uh, you know, monetary policy, it, its effect on financial markets is really set at the margin. But you're exactly right. From an absolute or even relative to history perspective, rates are still very, very low. And actually, since the Fed meeting, rates have come down, particularly at the back end, uh, which to me is sending some signals that, that, that maybe people think the Fed could be tightening a little too quickly. What's the risk here? Is it the Delta variant or is it something else? So, so look, certainly the, the you know the Delta variant is a risk. I think in, in almost everyone's baseline scenario, we, we continue to have a, a real recovery, uh, particularly here here in the U.S., where you know there may be pockets uh, of, of un, more unvaccinated parts of the country um, that get hurt by the Delta variant. And you know you look at what's going on in the U.K. right now, and the U.S. has been you know a month or two months behind that. So I think that's a risk, although that this certainly wouldn't be my baseline. You know, still health issues, but but my baseline is that the economy you know continues to get stronger uh, from, from here. But then there's this intersection with, you know, what we've been talking about so far, monetary mm. policy and, and markets. And, and, you know, is the Fed going to continue to be, always be incrementally more and more easy? The last meeting really, really pushed back against that. All right. So how do you play it uh, when it comes to the fixed income market? There's different ways and whether it's treasuries, whether it's corporates, how do you, how's, what's the approach you would recommend to investors at this point? Yeah. So look, you know, first off, you know, <laughs> we talk about equity markets rallying, lots of parts of credit markets in fixed income. <laughs> which I think one of the specialties we have here at Eaton Vance is uh, have rallied a lot. So the, the going forward returns are just you know not what they're going to be uh, for the past year or so that we've had a, a quite a strong rebound in the credit market since the, the depths of, of COVID, the COVID market impact at the end of March of 2020. But I think an asset class like floating rate bank loans where the you know, the coupon floats uh, off short-term interest rates, uh, you know that sector has done, been one of the best performing sectors in, in fixed income uh, year to date. That's been a good place to be. Uh, other parts of the markets, you know, emerging markets have certainly lagged as as COVID uh, has hit, you know, various EM countries very, very hard. But going forward, we think in the second half of the year, I think the incremental delta uh, in terms of getting more vaccines will be happening in Europe and will also be happening in emerging markets where uh, it's happened. You know, U.S. is at least from a large country perspective outperformed in that area in in the first half of the year. 
Do you see any kind of major correction within the fixed income market? And again, I know it's kind of a, a broad basket, but do you see anything like that coming in the next uh, year or so? So right to me, it's like, you know, right now is that we're in this Goldilocks scenario with mm-hmm. low rates, but strong growth. And so the, the credit spread component of fixed income spreads are quite tight because the economy is getting stronger and mm-hmm. investors are more confident that companies can pay back their debt. And the rate interest rate or duration component of fixed income yields are, are pretty low because the, the Fed still has easy policy, but also not that easy policy that people get too worried about inflation. So if right. we tip one way or the other, uh, then you could see a sell off if we stay in this Goldilocks scenario. <laughs> the, the, the positive for people that own bonds is yeah. that likely those prices stay where they are and they, they earn the carry. The negative for people trying to invest in bonds uh, is the starting point of yields remains remains quite low. Never easy, never easy. All right, Eric, good stuff. Thank you, thank you. Eric Stein, Chief Investment Officer of Fixed Income at Eaton Vance. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.